Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. I'm Justin Kaufman, and this is Reset. Senator Kamala Harris and Vice President Mike Pence squared off last night on a number of issues, including, well, the economy. On day one, Joe Biden will repeal that tax bill. He'll get rid of it. And what he'll do with the money is invest it in the American people. They want to abolish fossil fuels. And Joe Biden wants to go back to the economic surrender to China. Meanwhile, new unemployment numbers are out. Another 840,000 Americans filed for new state unemployment benefits last week. That's still roughly four times the number we saw per week before the pandemic. Coming up, famed chef and entrepreneur Rick Bayless gives us his view of one important sector of the economy, restaurants. But first, let's look at the wider picture with Chris Farrell. He is the senior economics contributor for Marketplace. Chris, welcome back to Reset. Oh, thank you for having me. Yeah, let's get into it. So more than 800,000 Americans applied for new unemployment benefits. What's this tell us about how the economy is or is not recovering? The economy continues to recover, but at a slower and slower pace. And it's really nerve-wracking that these initial claims for unemployment insurance are just staying really elevated, really high. And it fits in with what we saw with the labor market report that came out last Friday. So if you remember, the Bureau of Labor Statistics said Mm -hmm. 661,000 jobs were created. Under normal circumstances, we'd be standing on top of our desk (laughs) jobs cheering about 661,000 jobs. But that's a slower pace from the 1.2 million the previous month. And that has been the story of this economy. We had a sharp rebound, but then, you know, you go look at July, you look at August, you go September, and now you're going into October. The gains are slower and slower and slower. I saw Diane Swank on Twitter uh, this morning talking about this doesn't necessarily include some of the October corporate job cuts that could be coming as well or already happened. Uh, that's yeah. going to be a big issue when you talk about the airline industries here in Chicago, United Airlines. There's there's a lot of big corporations that are doing mass cuts in October. And so these numbers may be you know where they are right now, but they could be going in a, in a different direction uh, down <laughs> in the next uh, couple of weeks. That's right. I think you've really hit on something that's really important. I think a lot of companies, big companies that we're talking about, you know, a lot of companies, they furloughed workers, they husbanded their workers. And the sense was, look, we're going to get a rebound. We're going to come back fairly fast. Now, what I think with Allstate, United, um, you know, the different airlines, Walt Disney, what companies are now saying is 2021 is not going to be great. And we're actually downsizing toward a different revenue forecast. And so these big companies are going to start laying off more and more of their workers or not calling back workers who expected to get called back. And so those numbers, um, again, in that employment report, the unemployed who said that they've lost their jobs permanently, that's going up to almost four million. That's one of the more nerve-wracking numbers in that employment report. And the jobless numbers don't really tell the whole story in the state no. of unemployment because we're talking nearly half a million people. We're talking about freelancers, gig workers, self-employed, and others. I mean, they'd open that part up, which usually wasn't available for unemployment, and it was opened up. But oh, I mean, you talk about those numbers. Those people are not getting jobs as well. 
They're not getting jobs as well, and they're getting less and less because there's a lot of competition out there. And then the labor force participation rate of women was down, and that reflects two things. So one is the industries that have been really dramatically affected, right? Hospitality, you know, restaurant industries, but it also reflects kids going back to school. And so, you know, women are really being hit hard, both because, you know, no matter what we'd like to believe, women are still mostly responsible for caregiving and child caregiving. And so this has really been a harsh recession on the women labor force. Mm -hmm. So what can be done as numbers start to slide this way and you start to see corporations going, you know what, 2021 is going to look bad. So we're cutting more and more people. Are there any tricks in the, in the toolbox for the labor department to, to try and juice the economy? Oh, absolutely. We need another fiscal relief package. And the negotiations have been held up. The negotiations fell again apart today. The House passed last week. It's a $2.2 trillion fiscal relief package that's down from its previous $3.4 trillion. And, you know, the White House and Mnuchin, Treasury Secretary Mnuchin, they were talking about a $1.6 billion, but it hasn't gone anywhere. And there are really two reasons. I mean, one, Senate Republicans are clearly divided. And Mitch McConnell, the Senate Majority Leader, really doesn't want to bring it up for a vote because it's really unclear what would happen there. And uh, the other thing is we just had this election season going on, and then Mm -hmm. President Trump has changed his mind. You know, yesterday he canceled all negotiations. Then later in the afternoon, let's send out uh, relief checks, Mm $1,200 to Mm -hmm. people again. So, look, this economy is really fragile. And this economy really does need a fiscal relief. And state and local governments are being hammered. And their revenue is down and demand on their services is up. As you mentioned, all these people, I mean, we still have only gained back half the jobs that we lost in March and April. So we lost 22 million then. There's still about 11 million that are that have been tossed out underemployed, unemployed. And so, yes, there needs to be a fiscal relief package. And by the way, yesterday would have been good. Yeah, right, Chris. But, I, you know, the thing that, that gets me is is it's, it's tough to say this, but it almost feels like this is uh, one of the things that's standing in the way of, of this country being able to, to handle this is an election. Because yes. both, the, both political parties want to make their case to the American people, but at the same time, they don't want to necessarily do something that might backfire, that, that says uh, that gives a, a win to the other side. And so it almost feels like the election is actually standing in the way of us coming together to recognize that we are getting to dire straits here. Economists who are doing their forecasting, looking at the economy, they expected that we'd get another fiscal relief package because that it's an election year, just what you're talking about, and that the president of the United States would want some kind of a package out there, just pure self-survival. So now what people are doing is saying, well, maybe after the election, we'll get that package because then the politics may be clear in terms of, and that's what the president said mm-hmm. when he sort of, you know, canceled the talks. But look, this is, this is really wrong. What is going on right now? People are really suffering. The economy is fragile. We could fall back. You were talking about, you know, the increase in layoffs among these big companies. It is not an unreasonable forecast that this economy starts falling back down. And so getting that package out there, incredibly important. I would say the odds are now it comes after the election, not before. The one thing that I feel like the disconnect, and you hear it all the time in the in the in debates and, and on the campaign trail about uh, economic recovery and the jobs that are being added back at historical rates, 
if you'd go to the to just the, the street level, especially here in Chicago, and you see the numbers coming out of a place like Allstate or a place like United Airlines or other places that used to be just job creators, and they're not yeah. creating those jobs anymore, how long is that disconnect going to play out? Meaning how long are we going to have a conversation in political circles and in their newspapers that is different than what's actually happening on the ground? You've raised a really important point uh, because one of the things that has happened if there really are two economies. So one economy is is the economy where people can do their remote work. And that employment is pretty much been restored. And much of the unemployment has been concentrated among minorities, lower wage workers, women. And what you've raised is something that has been bothering a number of economists, which is that as this continues, it goes back into the white collar workforce. Because think about the jobs that are being lost at a place like United Airlines or Allstate. I mean, these are largely white collar jobs that we have seen the rebound. And so as that happens, then that sense grows that nobody is safe. Nobody is safe from a layoff. I mean, how many conversations do you think are going on right now? People remotely, you know, who have jobs, they can work remotely, but how many of them do you think are saying, okay, I got to run my budget numbers because I could get laid off. No one is safe. And that spills over into spending. That spills over into confidence. And that does have an impact on economic activity. When you think about looking at the future and the fact that uh, here we come into the winter months and, you know, hopefully there will be some sort of stimulus package that comes out. Is that going to be the future here where we, we kind of go stimulus package to stimulus package? I, mean, <laughs> I know that both political parties have different economic uh, philosophies about that because we saw that a lot of the, the economic stimulus ended in October. The day it, was, yeah. the day it ended, you had, you had airlines saying, okay, you know, 30,000 people are, are let go. So is that going to be what we're doing in this country, uh, obviously, until we get out of this pandemic, stimulus to stimulus? Yes. I mean, I think the way to think about it is there was this false dichotomy the virus versus the economy. The more you control the virus, the healthier the economy, right? That's what we have really learned, that health is critical to the economy. So until we take the kinds of actions that bring down the virus, which by the way, many, many nations have done, and I know they're having a resurgence, but the resurgence is from such a much lower level. So it's progress against the virus, doing the things that bring progress against the virus, and that allows for a stronger economy. Until we get there, we're going to have the need for more relief packages, maybe more targeted, more targeted ones. For example, you keep schools open and you close bars or those kinds of choices. But it is the virus and the economy. They go hand in hand. Chris Farrell, Senior Economics Contributor for Marketplace. Chris, always a pleasure. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. Well, that's a wider view of the economy. Let's narrow things down to a specific and very important sector, the restaurant industry. Restaurants across the country are facing a heavy financial burden. Up to 85% of independent restaurants say they might have to close if they don't get federal help. The Independent Restaurant Coalition is pushing Congress to pass a bill they believe could save 11 million jobs. It's called the Restaurants Act, and it's a $120 billion grant program. Joining me now for more on the bill and the difficulties restaurateurs are facing in Chicago, award-winning chef Rick Bayless. Rick, welcome to Reset. Thank you so very much. It's a pleasure to be with you. Yeah, good to talk with you. The, uh, you know, it's a, I guess it's a status check. How, how are things going at your restaurants when it comes to the COVID-19 pandemic? 
Um, well, that's kind of a loaded question because you could say when you come by Clark Street here that's closed off and we have an expanded patio and this is a beautiful fall week and there's lots of people sitting out there that you would say, oh, you must be doing just fine. Except the fact that we're running less than 50% of what we were running this time last year. And yet all of our costs, just like for every restaurant, the fixed costs are still 100%. And, you know, we, like everybody else, have tried to cut back in every way that we possibly can. We've only hired 50% of our staff back, which is kind of the most painful thing that I think I've ever experienced um, because we have really long-term staff. So some people that have worked with us yeah. for 20 years are still not back. And as we look at uh, moving toward the cooler weather and not so many people will be used to sitting outside when it's 40 degrees, I think that what we're really facing is the possibility, as you said in the introduction, of up to 85% of the restaurants closing during the winter. A lot of times people were saying in the very beginning of all of the shutdown and everything um, that, oh, if we can just make it a month, if we can make it two months and all that. And I said right away, if this thing goes on, it's going to be the winter where mm -hmm. we're going to see the greatest amount of fallout. Rick, do you see it as, as it's possible that, that we'll see an economy that's more like a seasonal town where where restaurants will, will instead of saying, yes, we're done for forever, we're going to shut our doors because it's more cost efficient from, from say, December to March or something like that? The Chicago version of Eater.com has an ongoing list that they publish every week of the restaurants that have permanently closed. But now what I'm noticing is that they'll say this restaurant is now closed and they'll reevaluate in the spring. But if that's the case, then I don't know what they're going to do to pay their rent. And, you know, if they happen to own their building, how they can continue in with the mortgages and the insurance and all of that sort of stuff. And, and the ecosystem. And that's the part people may not understand it's not just about you know how many customers come to your restaurant i mean there's there's ordering there's wholesale there's the, oh, the food yeah. you have to get the, the relationships and the contracts you already have the like you mentioned the rent the mortgage the the place that the restaurants the, actually the, the brick and mortar there's a lot and, that goes and the employees i didn't even mention that but the, there's so much that's affected that has this ripple effect to the outside economy the supply chain has been very, very heavily affected. And, you know, I've just been focusing mostly on the restaurants and, and making it okay for the restaurant workers, like we did uh, a food giveaway program for the first 12 weeks of the shutdown to make sure that people who were without work that were from the restaurant industry could actually put food on the table for their families. So I've been really focused on that. But, oh, my gosh, the people, the stories that you hear from all the small farms that we buy from from. And they've all tried to pivot to and, and going to doing CSAs and things like that. But at the same time, you know, a family of four is not going to consume the same kind of, of one-stop uh, order that we do every week for right, some of right. these people. And are the guy that does all of our chicken and pork, he is really hurting bad because he was just basically a supplier to restaurants only. Yeah. We talked about the restaurant acts that that's pushing to be passed by Congress. Right. What does it mean that they stall out? What does it mean for restaurants that they're ne this negotiation and they're not going to do something past the election? 
Well, that's the thing that I'm most concerned about uh, right now, because the Independent Restaurant Coalition, we founded that just days after the shutdown in March. And in the seven months that we have been in existence representing independent restaurants, which is by far the vast majority of restaurants in the United States, and that number that you, you pointed out, 11 million people work for independent restaurants, we wanted to, first of all, help all of the independents get through the PPP, when you would apply for that and how you could use that and so forth, and just to be um, a support system for independent restaurants. But then we penned together with um, with Congressman Blumenauer from Oregon, this Restaurants Act. And then uh, together with Wicker in the Senate, we had that put into both places. And of course, it passed in the House of Representatives. It's lock, stock and barrel right in the middle of the legislation that was passed at the end of last week. And we were so incredibly hopeful because it gets offered first to small ma and pa places because they're the ones that really are the fabric of the neighborhoods. So what we are what we have done with this act is to say compare what you were making last year at this time with what you're making this year at this time and help to make up that difference for a period of months to get us through the winter. Because I think we all say, if we can get through this winter, mm -hmm. then things are gonna change and hopefully we'll have a vaccine and we can rebuild our worlds. No, we're not looking for anything that is extraordinary or big. We just wanna be able to make it to the warmer months of the year so that we can actually continue to contribute to the economy. This is the part that that is concerning for for I think for restaurants, but uh, also for Chicago, is that you're not only contending with the fact that there are going to be capacity issues to be indoors and there's going to be uh, weather issues to be outdoors, but you're also contending with a behavior where Chicagoans change their behavior in the wintertime, right? I mean, that's that's what we have to do yeah. to survive, right? So how how do you do that when when you can have challenge when you know they announce the winners of the winter challenge there's going to be igloos and and uh, and, right, and pods right. and things like that. But how do you get people to say, I'm going to put my parka on and I'm going to go have this experience with Rick Bayless at Frontera or Atlanta Brava or some places like that? Well, it's a very interesting thing to think about. And I was on that committee that helped to, to narrow down the choices of the 640 applicants for what winter dining would look like in Chicago. And there's some really clever things in there. I know in our restaurants that we're seeing more people as the weather has gotten cooler, especially last week when it was cooler, more people saying, no, I'm happy to sit inside. Hmm. So maybe people were just really liking being outside because we always do in Chicago in the summertime, in the warm months. But now maybe that the time has come that people are reconsidering now whether they have to eat outside or not. They're going to say, well, as long as I'm seeing that everybody's wearing um, masks and that it feels like that there's a real great amount of sanitation going on, I think that people will be willing to come inside in the wintertime. But of course, um, you're exactly right in the wintertime. Just naturally, we all pull back. We want to be inside and we kind of like don't go out as much and so forth. But I will say, though, that the number of guests that we're doing uh, right now, like uh, last night, I think in Frontera, uh, we served a little over 100 people 
Well, that would be like a January day for us anyway. So maybe we'll still find those hundred people yeah. that want to come out and eat in January. Yeah, right. Chicago chef Rick Bayless with us. You know, one of the stories that broke today was just about uh, several workers who are protesting outside the Purple Pig on Michigan Avenue, uh, worried about coronavirus safety concerns, uh, yeah. negligence over that. As a business owner, someone who represents restaurants, and has a restaurant, uh, I don't want to say empire, but, you know, has a has a restaurant, uh, uh, I would say, you know, collection, collection uh, here in Chicago. How do you keep your employees safe in this uh, environment? How do, how do you make sure that they're a part of the equation? They're part of this as well. Um, they run the show, basically. We've done that since the, the day that we were closed down. And uh, we actually never did close completely because our place, Shoko, had a really big following for t- takeout anyway. So we didn't have to pivot in that restaurant. So we just kept that one open. And the first thing that we did is figure out how we could be safe. And this is one of the things that I think is really very important for everybody to be thinking about. And we have been thinking about it for the last seven months is how do we live with this, okay? It's not like how do we stay away from it, but how do we live with it? And if you go into the emergency room or go to one of the, the um, testing places and you look at what all of those people are doing when you know that they are coming in contact with people that have tested positive or that are going to test positive, they all wear masks. They're very diligent about wearing gloves. They keep cleaning things all day long. Well, that exactly describes what we do in our restaurant. And I think that you are negligent as a restaurant owner if you're not doing all of those things. Yes, it costs more money and it takes more time. But that is what it takes for us to live with this virus. Now, I say to our staff constantly, your only vaccine is your mask. (laughs) Your only vaccine is your mask. So you got to wear that thing incredibly diligently. And they do. And I guess our staff has been doing it now for so long that they're just very used to it. But when you come to work, it's a little bit like going to work in an operating room. We even have the HEPA filters to filter the air so that nobody in our midst is going to get sick. What do you think it looks like for for what a great restaurant town that is Chicago uh, in in the immediate future? I think that we are facing a rebuilding time, but I think that we're facing a rebuilding time in, in every great restaurant city in the United States. I don't think that we are going to see it have the same vitality that it's that it has had uh, in years past. But I do think that there is so much creativity and so much determination, especially on the part of the young restaurateurs and, and chefs, that if something, if they can't make it where they are now, they're going to look for another place to to pop up. I, I mean, I've been in this for more than three decades here in Chicago, and I can just say that if something happens to us and we can't make it through the winter because we're in a high rent district and I said the 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 writing is is not on the wall yet for us but if we don't make it through you'll see me surface right away someplace else chef restaurateur Chicagoan Rick Bayless Rick thanks so much for your time great talking to you today it was great to talk to you Justin thank you and that's today's reset make sure you hear all our important conversations about the issues that matter to you in this upcoming election Make sure you're subscribed to this podcast and tell a friend. I'm Justin Kaufman. Thanks for listening. And we'll see you right back here tomorrow for more Reset from WBEZ Chicago. Thanks for listening to the news live on WBEZ and NPR. 
The WBEZ stream sounds great in the kitchen on your smart speaker and anywhere on the WBEZ app. Listen every day.